Hi, my name is Chris and I'm a postdoc and associated member of ML4Q and you're listening to ML4Q&A, a show where members from the Meta and Light for Quantum Computer Cluster answer questions about their work in the cluster, their research and the future of quantum. Today we talk with Jan Klos about going from a master project in simulating quantum dot spin qubits to a PhD project fabricating them. We also discuss outreach, student supervision, thesis writing and Sauerbraten. It is my pleasure to welcome Jan Klos in the podcast. He's a PhD student in the group of Hendrik Blum, working on quantum dot spin qubits. Um, so how did you how did you get into this? You studied in Aachen, right? Uh, yeah. So uh, hi. <laughs> yeah. Nice for um, nice having me here. Um, yeah, I, I studied in Aachen. Um, I came here after um, my my military service and my A levels, and decided to study physics here. Yeah. And uh, of course, then you start studying, and I think it's 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 weird, right? In the first few years of the physics studies, uh, you get to see a little bit of everything. And you just get exposed to the general physics theory, pretty much. Yeah. But then, in the bachelor, comes the first point where you sort of um, can, first of all, start a project with a group, but also a little bit decide what kind of physics or like take first step in in a specialization, right? Yeah, in the very very end of the bachelor's. Yeah. So, yeah. what did you what did you do for a bachelor end project? Um, so, for my thesis, in the very end, I ended up at the uh, Fraunhofer Institute for Laser Technology. And then focusing basically on a medicine part where we use the laser to actually detect individual molecules um, to have some sign, some kind of cell sorter in the end. So it was very much experimental work um, where you basically had to combine uh, multiple different disciplines like um, optics and a little bit of biotechnology in this case to actually end up then with the final thesis. So that's like a very versatile bachelor end project, I guess. Because yeah, yeah, pretty much. It's very nice. And then you continued with the master. And I guess at that point, you slowly gravitated towards quantum information or yeah. was it even before? Yeah, yeah. So so after my bachelor's, I basically decided to, to study um, theoretical physics. And there I had a choice between particle physics and solid state physics in this case. And I decided to go for solid state. Um, And then I became aware, step by step, basically, of quantum information and especially quantum computing. And at some point, I also um, found the, the group of Professor Hendrik Bloom, um, who was actually the only group literally focusing on an experiment, experimental approach of uh, quantum technologies here, uh, or quantum computing using spin qubits in this case. And that's why I ended up in this group. So um, how important were the early on courses for this? Like, I, I also studied in Aachen accidentally. <laughs> and for me, definitely the um, both a theoretical course and uh, there was also an experimental mm -hmm. uh, course on quantum technologies and quantum computing. And for me, this was really important. How was this for you? Um, let's say it like that. The theoretical lectures... They were interesting, but not necessarily always related to, to what I'm doing now, and especially not to quantum computing as the main main focus now. Um, still, um, I learned during that time that independently of what kind of problem you're dealing with, um, you can somehow get or you learn how to solve a problem. And in this case, I'm not scared of anything nonlinear anymore or anything very abstract. And this is basically something I took away from the theoretical masters. Um, in terms of what I really learned during my master's lectures for now was basically that I back then already took several classes which focused on nanoelectronics and um, also quantum information in this case. This, is, this basically was the, the foundation of everything which came beyond or afterwards. So joining the group of Hendrik Bloom for the master end project was quite a logical step in that case. Kind of, yeah. yeah because it brought together the yeah. um, electronics and quantum information, mm -hmm. and a bit of materials. So I always research. had basically, I normally develop some kind of idea where, where I want to go and then um, subsequently take the steps towards this goal. So it was basically clear that I wanted to have something 
um, in the semiconductor um, range or semiconductor research, uh, quantum computing and quantum information was already quite a hot topic. Um, and therefore, I already decided quite early that I want to do something like this or in this research field. And therefore, it was a logical step, even though I knew that I wanted to do this beforehand. Was it that you picked among different possible projects and you 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 um, picked one project that, that caught your eye? Or was it that you uh, maybe went to meet with, with Hendrik or the group and, and uh, discussed what could be possible for a master's project? Mm. Well, I knew that depending on the actual availability of, of, of samples or measurements, which are feasible during a one year's master thesis, um, I knew that I rather wanted to do something with simulation where I know that the actual limitation is myself rather than something which is beyond my um, possibilities in this case, which I can influence, for example. And therefore, I directly approached, in this case, um, Dr. Lars Schreiber, who's basically a subgroup leader here, um, and asked him, and then we simply discussed what, what kind of possibilities there are. And then I directly started simulating in this case. And uh, so the thing that you simulated was, uh, um, so you did simulations related to what electrons do in these materials, right? In, in, a, in a rough sense like yeah in, in a rough sense so the <clears throat> the problem is always that um, we often have an idea of an experiment right and let's say that we want to localize a single electron to form a qubit, a qubit out of it but to do so we need some kind of specific sample and obviously you cannot directly know in advance how this kind of sample should look like so how uh, what kind of layout we need and therefore, we often start with basically simulations to, to actually have a first proof of principle that whatever we are thinking of or we are imagining um, actually can work in the very end. And so this is basically then <coughs> a pre-characterization, if you, if you say so. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Let's maybe, okay, then let's, let's maybe take a step back. Mm -hmm. So if you want to build a quantum computer, you want to make a qubit. And mm -hmm. the qubit is something that can be either zero or one or up or down. And yeah. it's for nice example, if you say up or down. Yep. Yeah. And uh, for example, you can have the spin, right? The spin is a qubit. Now, unfortunately, these spins usually have electrons attached to them, right? So in order to like, um, you, in order to have a spin, you can catch an electron and put it somewhere. Exactly. So we are basically localizing a single electron and, um, the rotation momentum in this case is what we call a spin, right? And then we manipulate a single individual electron in terms of the um, spin state. So whether it's, as you said, pointing up or down or left or right, it doesn't really matter as long as we have two dedicated levels or two de dedicated directions. And um, that's what we use as a spin on a very microscopic scale in comparison to different approaches. So this trap for an electron is a quantum dot. And so if you have um, multiple quantum dots, if you want to build more of them, mm -hmm. um, you, you, you basically have these, uh, these trapped electrons and they can maybe see each other a little bit. If you, if you want them to, yes. If you want them to. Um, so you can always imagine that, that we are forming something like a small bucket Right. And um, this kind of bucket is then later on, <laughs> if it works out, filled with a single electron and within two degrees of or, or with a spin, which is either pointing up or down. And then since we want to have multiple quantum dots or multiple spin qubits in this case, we simply form a second bucket right next to it. And then it depends basically on the on the surrounding of this bucket, whether they can see each other or not. Right. Yeah. And so the simulations that you, so, so you started the simulation project. And one of the things is that the, um, the electrons are already confined to live in a 2D plane, right? Like mm -hmm. that's usually the starting point. And then you have an additional layer to um, uh, confine them within this 2D plane. Exactly. Where, where did your simulations come in at that point? Um, so as you said, our electrons live in a, we call it two-dimensional electron gas, which basically means that 
as soon as we have enough electrons everywhere, because we did something very um, clever in the end, um, we have multiple different or multiple electrons within this plane. And the, the idea is now that we fabricate electrodes, electrodes um, on top of this kind of hydrostructure, which is actually forming or builds the sample basis. And then by applying negative voltages, which actually repel electrons, which are negatively charged, we can actually form or structure this kind of two-dimensional electron gas. And with the specific arrangement of these electrodes on top and by applying suitable voltages, we can end up with a single individual, individually controlled electron at a specific location. And to actually know now how you have to fabricate or how this kind of electrode structure should look like, we use simulations to do this in advance because otherwise it would be a huge amount of work which simply might not work in the end. Yeah. And mm -hmm. one of the difficulties is, I guess, that the structures are very small, right? Yeah, the, the we're talking about like 30 nanometers in width. Yeah. Length can be larger, right? Um, but the scale size is always tens, tens of nanometers. And how detailed are these kinds of simulations and how good do they match with the real thing? Interesting question. Um, so at the beginning, I thought, yeah, simulation is, is key. If you simulate, you, you definitely get the perfect result and you know exactly what's going to happen. Um, in terms of how it actually turns out in an experiment, this is different because simulations obviously always rely on, on some kind of assumptions which are ideal. In an experiment, this is not necessarily the case. If we now, if, if we come back to your question and say, okay, depending on the length scale or the width of a gauge, um, there the influence is not as large because if we have like 30 nanometers and we vary it by a few nanometers in percentage wise, this doesn't really make a big difference. But as soon as you um, consider, for example, all the different materials you have in your simulation and in your sample in the very end, uh, it, it will be completely different. And then um, at some point, we also decided to incorporate, we call it disorder. So basically everything which distorts our um, simulations from the ideal case. And we started to actually run first simulations with that. And then it's different. So it's a completely different story as soon as you go away, obviously, from the ideal case. Um, and then you have to find better approximations to actually fulfill this. So when you say, uh, I don't know, 30 nanometers, that's something like 300 atoms or, you know, like, a, mm -hmm. like not, not, not super many atoms. Yeah. So at that point, if you have like a few atoms out of place, that makes a big difference, right? Like if you have a wrong atom somewhere or, or an atom missing. Mm, so not necessarily on the scale of, of, of the electrodes on top. Yeah. Um, this is this is not a problem. It can be a little bit, it can be a little bit wider, a little bit more narrow. That doesn't really make a big difference. Um, it it becomes problematic, not on a physical side, but from a technological point of view. That if you have two small electrodes and um, they simply are not connected anymore because you have a, like like a very strong um, variation in terms of the width which can also drop to zero, obviously, and then your, your electrode doesn't work anymore. So this is rather a uh, technological problem you have to solve, but not necessarily directly a physical problem, which en ends up changing the, the, the tunability of your qubits, for example. Um, my question is, if you mm -hmm. add imperfections, do you, ra do you rather add a few defects into your mm -hmm. simulation, which are like discrete points, or is it that you sort of make a parameter very... Um, continuously like uh, do, do you say ah this parameter is like 5.5 mm. uh, instead of 5.7 mm. or is it rather that you say at this specific point there's a piece of crap and it distorts everything mm. so so we are doing both <laughs> uh, the one thing is that depending on what kind of disorder you're looking for you for example have a very valid approximation that you simply take a charged defect so point defect somewhere in some kind of material layer, let's say an oxide or a dielectric in general. And um, on the other hand, the, the other way is basically that you systematically change a specific parameter within your simulation, which then ends up 
being dominantly or, or dominantly influencing your results. But this is basically something you can counteract up to some degree. But these kind of defects, which are sitting at a specific point, this is basically the biggest um, or yields seems to yield the biggest contribution in terms of variability, which we see in our samples in the variant. And to counteract this, we always try to go towards uh, ensembles. So, so let's say 100, 200, 500 different simulations with randomly distributed point defects to actually then end up with a solid and statistically valid um, outcome in the end to actually say how this relates and changes our qubit parameters. So basically in your master thesis, you could start to understand on the one hand, what is the thing that you need to make work in order to make working mm -hmm. devices? Like what is the biggest problem? But on the other hand, maybe also come up with designs that are a bit more robust to this problem. Yeah, this was basically the very first steps towards this direction. Obviously, this this kind of evolution you just described changed or changed or evolved over multiple years, and um, this is basically a big focus of our group that we are trying to make it more and more realistic. And uh, so these simulations are very close to theoretical physics. Did you enjoy the <coughs> theory part, or uh, yeah, how, is it is it something you like? If you, now I guess you now you do your PhD in experimental physics, so I can ask you like, there's 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 the theory of like looking at a problem, trying to understand it better, trying to figure it out abstractly. Mm -hmm. There's experiment, which is uh, hands on, hands on. Uh, <laughs> so what what do you enjoy more? Um, I always felt that theory can be sometimes pretty dry and um, time consuming. I, obviously, there are people who can really enjoy this and I uh, biggest re respect to these these guys uh, who actually also bring the field forward. Um, but at some point, I always wanted to be a little bit more hands on to, to for example, have at some point a sample in my hand let, saying, OK, I, I built this, for example. Or, or I have now something where I can actually have um, not problems on a piece of paper or on the whiteboard I have to solve, but rather something a little bit larger yeah. and more physical, let's say. Um, so, so, I mean, also since Big Bang Theory, we know that there's these two kinds of physicists, I, right? I studied during that during time, the time when, yeah. the, when the series uh, came out, yeah. That was do fun. you feel like, I, I've always also felt weird about this, do you feel that <clears> we have to distinguish in, in, in experiment and theory, or is it possible to, to do both to some extent? Should we all try to do a bit more of both? Like, what's what do you think? Um, obviously, there are, there are research fields which uh, are only experimental, and completely uninteresting for a theory and the other way around. Um, for quantum information, quantum computing, I would definitely say that we have to work together as close as possible. Because as soon as you go a little bit beyond simply clicking individual or, or not clicking buttons, but uh, tuning a qubit, you, you have to understand the theory behind it. Right. We are at the moment, we, we have like multiple pro or one big project, which is focusing on transporting a qubit coherently over a specific distance. Um, as soon as you do this in experiment, it, it might seem easy because you it, it might seem. Um, but as soon as you go into theory, you will realize that there are so many um, implications to this, which have to be understood in the very end. And therefore, you need also hardcore theory guys to to investigate this. Even yeah, I think, I think both things happen, right? Sometimes it is. Sometimes we just try to do something experimentally, and then two years later, somebody does some back of the envelope calculation and tells us that this was never even possible. It, yeah, it can happen. It can happen. And <laughs> <laughs> so, some, sometimes, uh, sometimes things work in experiment, uh, 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 and 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 theorists come later and and understand mm. why. And sometimes theorists make, uh, 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 I mean, it, it also occasionally happens that a theorist makes a proposal and it just works. Although that's maybe... <laughs> I would say it's more bound to yeah. to um, particle physics, but um, it always <laughs> takes like decades to actually prove that. But yeah, it happens. Yeah, indeed. I mean, the spin qubit <laughs> proposal was done by David DiVincenzo mm -hmm. and this was in 1998, right? Mm. And we're still uh, working hard to... Uh, sort of see this architecture really work in a big multi-qubit setup. 
Yeah, the, the scaling is especially the problem, right? Individual spin qubits have been proven to work. Um, not all of them are perfect. Um, one has to be that honest, but um, it's still a long way to go in this case. Yeah. So, but at any rate, you came with a solid theoretical understanding uh, out of your master's project. And then, mm -hmm. I mean, you, you knew what you were getting into and you decided to continue with the PhD. Yeah. But you sort of slightly changed direction. Can you describe how like you, you went into your PhD project? and? Mm -hmm. um, so during my master's, I was predominantly sitting in front of my um, desktop PC simulating. After like one year of simulating and sitting in your office, um, while everybody else in your experimental group is going to the lab and going to the clean room and doing stuff and, I don't know, ordering cables, whatever they did, um, you have the I, I felt the urge to also be more hands-on even more hands-on obviously and then um, a good colleague of mine um, offered me the possibility to actually join him one day in a clean room in Jülich so basically the research center and um, there I actually decided that fabric so going into the technology side to actually create a single sample starting from scratch with, let's say, a piece of silicon and turning it into something which can be a qubit invariant is something I wanted to do. This was really, this is basically the completely opposite part from what I've done before, um, but it was somehow the way I wanted to do things and dive deeper into semiconductor in this case, then technology. Yeah. And we had this kind of cool um, project I, I now work on, um, which actually focused then on re-evaluating the technology we use to fabricate these kind of samples in the sense that we wanted to use ideas which already are implemented in industry to use them to fabricate one of our samples. And this was basically then the holy grail of, of combining more hands-on work, working in a clean room and diving deeper into technology, which is used in semiconductor industry in this case. Yeah, exactly. This is like one of the big uh, sales points for semiconductor quantum dots and especially silicon semiconductor quantum dots. Yeah, silicon is... That the, people always say that silicon is what computers are made of. That's correct. Um I mean, it's true, right? It is true. Yes. Um, obviously, there are always the details which are the most important um, and which actually then later on make a difference. But yeah, so still. Can, yeah, let's let's just talk a little bit about materials, maybe at the example of silicon and gallium arsenide, because mm -hmm. it's, to be honest, gallium arsenide is a similarly perfected, if not more perfected material than silicon, right? Um, uh, well... So as far as I know, gallium arsenide, in terms of the, the, the materials and the heterostructures or substrates we use, is only as perfect, perfect, in quotation marks, as it is because there was the uh, laser industry behind it because they actually needed gallium arsenide to fabricate better lasers. So they had to improve this kind of quality. So it's, it's a very good material, yeah. It is... From a quality point of view, good for qubits later on, uh, not necessarily. Yes, right? exactly. And the problem is always that, I mean, what you want to do with a few qubits. And if you want to scale this up in terms of that you basically get like 100, 1000 and so on and so forth, uh, you should better use a material system which is somewhat capable of being fabricated by somebody else than an academic group. Because this is basically the way to go. If you do research in academia, you, in the best case, you want to transfer this kind of knowledge which was made or generated into industry. That's how it normally works. And gallium arsenide um, is not known to be um, a material system which is handled by industry, um, at least not the industry which is actually focusing on fabricating field effect transistors. So what's what's the other important difference between uh, gallium arsenide and silicon in terms of making spin qubits? Um, well, silicon itself is... So, so I wouldn't always say that there is 
um, advantages or disadvantages, or there are disadvantages and advantages in this case, it's very hard to to compare these because they are very different. Right? Um, for gallium-arsenide, you have to deal with nuclear spins, which are on an atomistic order. For silicon, you don't have to do this in this extent, but you get different problems, right? Um, one important one, or one famous one, maybe famous in our community, is the so-called Weller splitting in silicon, which you have to somehow counteract or at least work with it, what we are doing. Um, so I wouldn't directly say that there are big differences, but in comparison to gallium arsenide, silicon still has a possibility to actually build on knowledge which has been already generated in different fields. Yeah. So, so the idea of your project was basically to um, uh, work on a new way of fabricating, right? Mm -hmm. And bring in this sort of silicon expertise from industry. Exactly. Um, can you quickly, like for, for in, in layman's terms, um, give an idea of what's the difference between how academic silicon works compared to industry silicon? Uh, <laughs> to break this down, um, you, you're trying to make the fabrication in terms of technology to end up with the qubit sample as self-reliant as possible, let's say. Um, in academia, our traditional way is that we fabricate small electrodes by a so-called lift-off process, which is carried out. Let's say it, it works like this. Um, and then you repeat this kind of step three times. Let's say it tops, it tops three times. And you have to make sure that every single iteration is aligned. And since we already dis discussed it, the width of such a gate is like on a scale of like 30 nanometers, and you want to have them aligned on a scale of like five nanometers. Aligning something on a scale of five nanometers is hard. So there are a few people who can do this, um, but this is really, really hard. And the problem is that you do this three times in iterations. You also have all the time a different kind of topography because you're basically putting them onto each other every single iteration. So it gets increasingly complicated. And the idea was then that we use a process in this case from industry silicon, um, which is so-called self-aligned, which means that you do not really have to care for alignment anymore. It also yields a single or, or no topography with increasing step size. You can also do this multiple times and end up always with smaller footprints or width in this case of the electrons, but the topography does not increase. And if you if you have the possibility to actually run this in a dedicated set of tools or technology in this case, you also have a higher yield in the end because the variability uh, does not necessarily increase as long as these different steps, which you repeat, are well processed or well developed which is a completely different story if you if you go to to increasing topography and putting things onto each other imagine building a house on a house and then it gets more and more worse instead of building a um, skyscraper for example so for this you had partners from um, you, you need you needed a, a partner group to you to the mm -hmm. uh, Aachen research group right exactly so um this, this, this overall project is basically um, a collaboration between our Physics Institute and the Institute of Semiconductor Technology, also at RWTH. And um, their focus is predominantly on CMOS technology and fabricating MOSFETs, and obviously more than MOSFETs, but um, MOSFETs is one big part. And there we started this kind of collaboration with and so I ended up in a clean room, also learning from them, developing own processes and so on, and also bringing in a little bit of, of let's say, physics touch to, to simply process development. So did you, did you enjoy being at this interface between, between physics and engineering and working with the 
I still do. Oh yeah, yeah. I still do. After after all these years, I still do. I, I also think that especially all these interfaces uh, between different groups where it's very hard to communicate because they, for example, speak different languages. This is basically always one of the biggest problems, independent of what you do. So being at the interface is always fun. I, I also always, when whenever I, I work with some electrical engineering mm-hmm. experts, I often have the impression that there's many problems that the engineers are really, really good at solving. Like, for yeah. ex- I mean, for example, if you do controls on qubits, the signal level, like the signal processing and these things, there's mm-hmm. many things that we can still probably learn from. It. Yeah, definitely. So that's no, that's that's a great place to be for the PhD. But right? but, but the the biggest problem is always that you at the very beginning have to learn to 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 understand what they're aiming at and what they're interested in. Because otherwise, if if I start talking about T1 times and spin qubits and so on, they're always like, okay, what does this mean in terms of a MOSFET? What about the sub threshold slope? if I want to increase or accumulate electrons. And this is like, this, this is really, um, this is something one has to learn. A bit. So exactly, let's mm-hmm. talk a little bit about this. So you need to have an idea of building a, a device on a chip or ideally many copies of a device and mm-hmm. coming up with sort of the good device for testing um, the figure of merit that you want. Let's say you want a, you know, mm-hmm. a semiconductor that is a quiet electrical environment where your electron is happy. Um, what is the ideal device? Do you build quantum dots or do you build... Uh, what, what, what is the de- first device that you build to characterize a material? And, uh, and, and the mm-hmm. process, like uh, not, not only a material, but like uh, yeah, the whole. Mm-hmm. So um, at the moment, we, we... So there are like obviously different steps you have to take until you end up hopefully in the end with qubit. And one of the most basic steps is that you accumulate current or electrons and have low temperature ohmic contacts. This is so fundamental that most of the people don't really think about this anymore and especially not that something could go wrong with this. Um, This is something one has to relearn from time to time. But this is also the part which is the most overlapping with for example the the mosfet guys right you're always at the very beginning you have to have contact to whatever sample you have and from this you can proceed then next step would be to for example form or fabricate a so-called hall bar which allows you to later on infer the mobility so somewhat limited by by scattering effects and remote scattering and uh, defects and so on and or worse is then the actual density of electrons you can accumulate. That's in the second part. And then you sequentially improve and increase whatever you're interested in. So the engineers, they also build hall bars, right? Probably. Probably, yeah. They should. But uh, <laughs> uh, then the next step would the, be maybe a quantum point contact or quantum dot, which they don't do? Yeah, well, so so first of all, most of the times the electrical engine or... or um, guys in the MOSFET community do not necessarily cool their samples down. (laughs) (laughs) So um, they they are more interested in like um, hot devices on a scale of like way above um, millikelvin regime. Um, And this obviously also already makes a difference. Um, But yeah, it's somewhat related. um, But the differences are already there obviously right so temperature regime does play a role um but so so when as soon as we are forming a qpc for example to try to to pinch off this current we just induced and this is pretty much related to having a mosfet which is simply switched off um yeah exactly like this quantum point contact mm -hmm. is like a minimum uh, electrical connection, M- so to Mos- speak, right? MOSFET time yeah. type, yeah. But yeah, the 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 overall regime is completely different, right? Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, we could also try to to cool down a MOSFET, but the question is then with. So where, where, where did you guys where, where where did you guys start with these devices? What do you mean? Where do we start? like when 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 you started out collaborating um, with uh, hmm. um, uh, with with a, a semiconductor um, a community? Mm-hmm. 
um, what were the first devices that you guys built and were you like immediately happy or did you from the onset? Mm -hmm. uh, you mean within this project? Yes. Basically? Yeah. So um, I started with the piece of silicon. So literally at the very beginning, okay, one could have grown the silicon on its own, but this is some the luxury that we um, used to simply buy them. Um, but yeah, the, f the first step was pretty much to see whether we have any kind of good omic contact at low temperatures. At high temperatures, this is more or less easy. Mm -hmm. um, but at low temperatures, then you have to already think about what you're doing. Obviously, we are not the first ones in the community um, to, to actually do this. So we could rely on a lot of experimental work, uh, which has been done in the past. So you start up with uh, reading a lot of papers. Um, but as soon as you actually start fabricating one, you will realize that it always depends on the details and especially those details which are not written in a paper. Uh, <laughs> so this is basically um, something you will learn immediately. And um, therefore, we started at reproducing what other people did and then finding our way to actually have induction at deep temperatures in this case at 4k because mm -hmm. it doesn't really make sense to go to even lower temperatures because things don't change anymore no yeah. not really yeah. not in a in a way that we can that measure this at that. an omic contact yeah and then we simply proceeded at some point we split it up to actually um, share the work among two phd students i focused especially on the gas structure on top um, and the other PhD student basically focused on the fabrication of the um, or the structuring of this kind of silicon chip. Um, yeah. And then we went forward. That's what we did. And uh, mm. how, how do you like, um, so if right now, I guess there's a like a parallel track of the sort of academically fabricated quantum dots and mm. the sort of more industry-like fabrication. Yeah. So this was actually kind of an, a crazy moment at the beginning of this year so um that i i read the paper which was published by intel in cooperation with uh, qtech in the netherlands that they actually fabricated a device uh, literally with the same kind of um process i i was pursuing um so at the moment this is basically going in parallel with the industry Obviously, the industry has the advantage that they do this already for quite some time and they even earn money with it. So they do not have the problem that they lose their uh, technology at some point. Um, but yeah, at the moment, we are trying to, to have more and more industry corporations in this case to actually transfer knowledge, to actually find people who can speak both languages, um, make this connection happen and then uh, proceed from there. Because at some point, obviously, you do not really want to spend all of your time as an academic group simply fabricating devices. You really want to proceed to have more than a few qubits and then go forward and do more physics and more cool measurements right. and experiments in the end. Mm -hmm. um, so... What what is what is the day to day life in this like? So you spend a lot of time in the clean room. We already established this. <laughs> and uh, um, so, how should somebody who doesn't know about this imagine uh, imagine the day to day life? Mm. Well, hmm. If I would simply wrap up a day during the the high season of of technology development, let's say. Um, you get up early because you, in the, in the very morning, uh, most of the people are not necessarily working, especially not in a clean room. Obviously, you always have a lab body somewhere, uh, somewhere because otherwise you're not allowed to work there. Um, and then you plan your your experiments. And this in this case, I mean with experiments, the, the specific technological oriented experiments you have to do because you obviously have some kind of black box in front of you. Let's say this is some kind of machine. And you actually want to learn how to, to come from something you put in there to something you actually can use, which gets out of this machine. And um, then you spend most of the or most of the day um, also sitting in front of the machine to actually figure out what is really going on. And 
in many times this is also a little bit frustrating because obviously there is not one parameter which changes something but like i don't know 10 ish 20 the, the hidden variable yeah the, the, it's always a problem that you 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 should always be afraid of the things you don't know <laughs> and this can actually blow up every kind of scheduling you've done before um either way so um the the fun part always always begins that as soon as you basically have a better or developed a good understanding of what is really going on and this is obviously also something you can do up front so the day before let's say um, and you really realize that you understood what is going on and you can really proceed um, and see and tune basically the the machine you have all the way to the maximum capabilities um, which can or which are feasible and then this is always um, kind of cool obviously you you leave the clean room in between because working longer than like seven hours straight in a clean room is exhausting yeah i also um, heard this light can make you depressed right because it depends on the room you're in if you're <laughs> if you're in photolithography let's say then everything is yeah, like yellowish yeah. because it's very sensitive to the blue part um the rest is like white yeah um so uh you get used to it yeah you I really also, get used to it also there's this constant um noise the from humming the, the, hum, the <laughs> constant humming yeah yeah um but yeah obviously you have to have some kind of endurance um to to really go forward in fabrication one i cannot i can't say anything against that I, it's I think, simply yeah. a, it's simply a fact <laughs> i think the the other thing that you really learn is to be present at the right moments right you have a lot of kind of boring and repetitive tasks but if you if you lose mm. your concentration at the wrong moment yeah. you, you, you have to be two days of work yeah, pr pretty <laughs> much pretty much so this is so so you really have to stay focused and um you yeah it's always good to question everything up front but during the time you're in there you have to stay focused because otherwise you might i mean from the obvious parts that you might injure yourself or damage a machine you really do not want to screw up your samples you fabricated mm -hmm. beforehand because depending on what you're doing they might have already seen a month of work and it's it's always like uh, this is also a little bit a pity because uh, in most cases um, you doing fabrication is something which is considered to to which one should do you simply have to do it at the beginning to have to run an experiments you have to do fabrication um, but pity is if you if you start something new in terms of fabrication and it's not yet developed as much as it needs to be developed to actually simply run then it can be very exhausting i, I think the the key to being a successful mm -hmm. um, researcher in spin qubits is to be there when a device is working and ideally already in the fridge that like this the, is the moment to arrive that's right? the most luxurious um situation there is yeah. yes because because when when things work they usually if, work if they work you do not have any problems right? <laughs> you, so can, you can directly start tuning it manipulating the the qubit but this is basically something um it's like the ideal situation in uh, simulation, right? Yeah. Um, it doesn't happen. It it does happen. It does happen, um, but it's not the general case. So, do you did you in your time as during the PhD did you supervise any uh, master or bachelor students? Yeah, quite quite many actually. So um, on a scale of like six ish in total. Yeah, and like how how many how many of them did do clean room projects and how many did non-cleaner related projects um, well for for bachelor thesis i always relied on a project um which where i more or less knew what would come out uh, which are very limited so there are no surprises uh, so they did simulation yes <laughs> I, i have the same sort of philosophy i also think that yeah. the clean room is very dangerous yeah it's like yeah yeah for sure so so for masters i always try to 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 make it so all of them went into the clean room, um, obviously because I spent most of my time there. Um, but they also had like very, let's say from a technological point of view, very easy projects. Yeah. Um, I'd rather you 
worked with the master students in a way that I wanted to build up something where I can actually characterize defects, as we already talked about, um, within the materials. And um, they were, the, let's say, the lucky ones, or the unlucky ones, depends on the perspective, I guess, um, who did even easier jobs or tasks in the clean room to actually then fabricate first devices. But if we are honest, this is also quite cool because if you're in your master's and did a lot or heard a lot of lectures and calculated your, your exercise sheets and so on, um, then actually fabricating something on your own, even if it's a very, very tiny sample or tiny in terms of effort you have to put in, it's already cool that you have basically the full range of, of creating a sample, measuring it, analyzing it and getting something out. How, how much time did you spend measuring compared to time in the clean room? Oh, I, I definitely spend more time in a clean room, to be right. to be honest. So it's I mean, like, it's not it's not unusual. In no, the, no, no, no. It's like two thirds in a clean room of the overall time, um, and one third in in measuring. Yeah. No. But I always try to to automate things as much as possible because this is basically um, gives you more time to do something else, obviously. Yeah. And therefore, I. Um, I ended up measuring already while still being in a clean room because it was automated in a way that I do not really have to supervise. Yeah, this. I mean, a lot of the, like, mm -hmm. to perfect the materials and processes, in principle, what you want is probably, I mean, eventually people need to do really a big effort in, in you know, running the same tests on many, many devices to really improve yeah. the yield and performance, right? Yeah, this is, um, yeah, it's, it's always... In the very end, it's always about the statistics, right? If you read a paper, then in most of the cases, the paper is like one sample. Um, if you want to improve the yield of the sample or the number of, of statistical data points you have, you have to have more samples and more measurements. And then this is basically something which is, and one has to be fair, still missing up to some Yeah, I, I think this is something that people always think that physics is very um, reproducible. And I think solid state physics is probably in most cases fairly reproducible, meaning that if you would cool down the same sample again, <laughs> well, sometimes samples break, of course, so you couldn't do that. But let's say, let's say like the very sample that the experiment was mm -hmm. measured on, it probably worked and it probably did the thing that... They At said. least chances are high, right? Chances are high. But I mean, uh, most people don't publish... Um, papers where they did the same thing 10 times in a row and sometimes they don't publish this because it wouldn't be so easy to do yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, that's also actually a pity because this is also a big part of, of research obviously but it's not so or it's not considered outstanding yeah. anymore and this is basically something uh, which is always a little bit um yeah yeah maybe unfortunate let's say because you always only see the best the very best side yeah. of of a sample or of a group or of whatever they did. But that's that's how it is, right? I, I also have to say, like, from my <laughs> PhD work, sometimes you look at some papers from other groups or, you mm. know, some... And, of course, the paper that ends up in Science or Nature um, is the work, is, like, many people who did hard work. But it's also sometimes, you know, a lucky device. Like, there's, mm. there's a lot of hero qubits, meaning that yeah. there's this one qubit that somebody made that is really, really good. Yeah. And often in such a way that they couldn't, they don't really know what made this qubit super good. Yeah. Um, and yeah, this this can be somewhat depressing. And I think it's good to remember this, that um, in the beginning, at, at least in, in many of the qubits in the beginning, there's a lot of devices that are outstanding. But what you don't see in the journal is the 10 devices before that were, yeah. were crap. Yeah, or, yeah, yeah. yeah. If it's only 10. Yes, if it's only 10, <laughs> exactly. Can be arbitrarily higher. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, let's let's mm. talk a little, uh, maybe let's take a, a, um, a little bit of an intermission with some with some rapid either or questions, just to... to, ah, to I heard of this. To, I, yeah, to, to be a I bit more... I was looking forward to this. To, to, yeah. <laughs> to, to, to relax things a little bit. Mm? So let's uh, start with gallium arsenide or silicon. Silicon. Of course. Obviously. Theory or experiment? Experiment. <laughs> And uh, measuring of fabrication, what do you enjoy more? Mm, I enjoyed more fabrication, but I would like to go more into measuring. 
So and I think like, it's always you always enjoy the thing that you're not failing at. Yeah, right now. I, I I always want to do also new things and go forward. And therefore, do you prefer teaching, like um, being a TA, more or mentoring, like mentoring a bachelor or master's? Mentoring. Student? It's it's way more fun. Yeah. You're in more contact. It's it's uh, yeah. it's it's true that I really like that. Maybe we can just briefly. Dis I I think also <laughs> like people always say that we at the universities we could be better at teaching. And we probably could be, but it's also that for PhD sure. students, I mean, teaching is not always the most enjoyable part of the job. Also for postdocs, I have to admit. Yeah, I mean, teaching is something, so teaching without, where we exclude supervision of uh, master and bachelor students is obviously something which is reasonable to do. I mean, right? Uh that's that's how it works and one has to do this because otherwise you do not get any students to do yeah. pro or have the fundamental basis um but supervision makes way more fun it's also yeah. if you think about your project um if you teach somebody how to solve the schrodinger equation um in in an exercise um it it is related to your work but it doesn't bring you forward necessarily while working with a master student who can actually develop the creativity or might even have already the creativity to to bring in new ideas and new thoughts and also work towards a specific goal this is way more fun yeah maybe there's some way in the future i think the other problem is that in teaching we have to always correct homeworks and then you this, don't i mean it's just it's just it, not a it, it's not a thankful it, task no it takes a lot of time at least a day at least yeah depending when you're lucky then it's a day yeah exactly <laughs> can um, be even more um, and then in addition, and you don't, yeah. you don't see the, you don't see the result. Maybe the students learn something. Maybe you see it in the next exercise, but yeah. exactly. Like if you have a master student, maybe at some point he does something that you didn't come up with yourself yeah. and yeah, yeah true, so true. much more rewarding. Yeah. But on the other hand, I mean, from within the last couple of years, you, at some point I realized that somehow the, the basis for understanding, for example, quantum mechanics, so understanding quantum mechanics, um, is, uh, becomes a little bit more hard because you actually realize that people have heard or learned less before actually starting to study. So this is actually also up to some degree fascinating, um, even though it's um, negatively connotated, I would say. Um, but um, there I always, or I'm always eager to, to actually teach them something that they actually can make or are able to make up this kind of gap, which is yeah. building up. Um, but yeah. So in, in, in scaling up the, um, the quantum dots, um, mm -hmm. how much of the improvement of these devices will be improving material science and how much of it will be improving the architecture, like the, how, like sort of the material or how you use the material? Mm, good question. Um, I would, I would say it's in the next steps. It's definitely improving the materials. Um, I think that we learned sufficiently, or we had a decent number of experiments to prove that these kind of concept we are following and we are doing research on work. Um, but most of the time, I would always say that the materials itself seem to be a limiting factor, being it the, the heatra structure, so the silicon uh, basis or the silicon germanium or even galimarsenite, even though it might be cleaner or better in terms of material quality. But um, there are so many different problems which arise as soon as you simply put two materials on top of each other, <laughs> which can end up in a huge mess. Um, I would definitely say going towards material quality and improvements is the next step we have to do. And the community, should the community spend more time on making more quantum dots or making better quantum dots? Or do both at the same time? Also a fascinating question. So uh, a new, um, so Rami Barenz, um, who just recently joined uh, the, for, uh, the research center, basically um, answered this question in the sense that um, it's, it's good that you simply scale up the number of qubits. The question is whether you can use them for anything or, as 
I understood, he would rather follow the, the direction of improving the qubits up to a degree that you can actually rely on um, longer and better performances, even though you just have a few. And I would actually say that currently I would make them better. So basically equivalent to what he said, uh, but on a long time scale, you should definitely make sure that you also have a decent amount or a decent yeah, a decent amount of qubits. Re regarding materials, what's mm -hmm. what's the better material, uh, sapphire or uh, silicon dioxide? <laughs> uh, uh, so let's say aluminum aluminum oxide, yeah, like it's amorphous aluminum oxide or, or mm -hmm. silicon dioxide. Uh, it's silicon oxide. Yeah. Oh, silicon oxide is the better dielectric. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And why? Oh, <laughs> multiple reasons. Um, so aluminum oxide has. So from from the capabilities of what we are um, what we are able to do to actually create aluminum oxide, uh, the dominant way is using atomic layer deposition, and this basically re relies on on um, metal organic precursors, which are then uh, oxidized in this case, and these kind of technology processes are very much prone to being all over the place. Especially if you if you if you think about thin layers, then um, we are deviating from the ideal aluminum oxide, which everybody is referring to, drastically um, in all in all respects. And therefore, silicon oxide is basically one of the um, best or let's say investigated materials we have. Um, if you have thin layers, it even ends up with the equivalent capacitive coupling which is important later on. Um, and we can actually improve it by using passivation techniques, for example. And this is not the case for aluminum oxide. Should, uh, um, maybe, maybe a last, uh, a last mm -hmm. uh, a quick question. Should quantum dots live at millikelvin temperatures or at one Kelvin? Hmm. <laughs> I mean, there are groups who are doing this at one Kelvin. Um, I would say it doesn't matter as long as they live long enough and have a decent performance in the very end. Uh, maybe, maybe another lighthearted question because I did <laughs> my, my master's thesis in the same group. <laughs> do you guys still play computer games in the lunch break? Yes, we do. Very good. How does the research cluster ML4Q influence the life of a PhD student? Um, there's more um, communication between groups, actually. Um, so beforehand, it always felt like a one or one group uh, activity up to some degree um, and the cluster actually changed that that you actually have more contacts to different physicists and engineers from different disciplines with different kind of backgrounds um, you have to have to you have to learn the language before <laughs> because otherwise you're lost again and you're standing there on your own but um, as soon as this is done um, you can actually use the cluster as a huge resource yeah, I think so too. I mean, mm. part of it is us talking right now. But yeah, exactly. I, I, mean, I think indeed this it's 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 a really cool way to. I mean, for me, it's also always amazing to talk just to talk to other scientists and learn what they what they are up yeah. to. It's always fun. I mean, being on a podcast show uh, <laughs> is something I wouldn't have imagined a few years ago. Um, but yeah, it's it's quite fun. You, you have also worked on an outreach project making an image movie, right? Yeah, yeah. this was uh, also related. So, so at some point, um, our institute uh, realized that simply doing whatever we are doing um, for the next couple of years doesn't really um, solve a few problems. And in this case, one of these problems is basically that um, we want to grow. We have so many projects here um, and people have to know us or get to know us. And therefore, one of the ideas was basically that we develop or that we create an image film of our institute. And apparently I was um, too motivated when I heard about this and had too many ideas that I ended up um, yeah, sketching it and then also uh, producing it together with a film team. That's really, I mean, I think yeah. always that doing doing other things than, than science during a PhD is always a good idea. Uh, yeah, all, Because you, you get back to the work with more motivation afterwards. Yeah. And maybe maybe you motivate some students to join. And that's really, uh, I think, mm. 
maybe one of the most important things that we can do, right? Yeah, definitely. So if people are interested, they should uh, simply go to YouTube, uh, search for our institute, so the uh, Yara Institute for Quantum Information, and they will immediately find our image film. Okay. So and exactly. if they have like two and a half minutes, then they know what we are doing and what we are heading. <laughs> um, should we should we do more in terms of outreach uh, as as a as a quantum community here in the Rhineland or? Definitely. I mean, in comparison to Bavaria or uh, what do they call this? Uh, Lower Saxony. Right? Um, they are, uh, nobody really knows something about us. So in comparison to them, I don't have the feeling that we are doing enough. I mean, we're a huge project and a huge collaboration between different universities with like all kinds of expertise. And nobody really knows. So At least this is my impression. <laughs> it might have changed <laughs> already. But um, yeah. Yes. I mean, the, the millions of people listening to this podcast might disagree, but. <laughs> <laughs> They might disagree. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, then, yeah, let's maybe briefly talk uh, 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 for the end about a little bit about still the future of quantum mm -hmm. and, 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 uh, and your future here. So what, what do you think will be, um, do you think the silicon germanium material um, with like little tweaks and help from industry will, is, is a really good candidate to scale up for like these near-term intermediate scale quantum computers? So for these NISC devices, um, I think that we are too far behind. Um, at the moment, they are like the um, iron trap platform. We have photonic Uh, approaches and then obviously there are these um, decent um, approaches by IBM with the superconducting qubits um, so I don't think that we will actually end up fabricating something or or silicon or you know, silicon based electron spin qubits will end up as a NISC device um, so I guess silicon germanium will rather go for the long haul and then um, come back with a huge amount of qubits, which are in the end error corrected and you can use whatever for whatever you want to do. Um, <clears throat> If they know by then what they want to do. <laughs> so you, you will, you will probably start or have you started writing yet or you will start writing a thesis soon? I basically just started. So I'm preparing all the, uh, the figures now and then. Um, so how, 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 how do you plan on, on the writing process? What's, what's your, um, um, so my take on this is that I start with the figures, then iterate this before to, to actually make sure that nobody finds a new or way of telling me that it's, uh, that I should start some, doing something more, um, and then starting to write text. Yeah. If that does That's answer your question. Because yeah, in, in science, we often just, yeah. the text is just describing yeah. the diagrams and the pictures yeah, in, in more words. Kind of. And it, I think you, you really don't want to end up in a situation where you wrote your thesis independently of master, PhD, whatever. And then two weeks before you actually wanted to hand in the thesis, somebody tells you or your supervisor tells you, ah, well, um, no, not like this. You should better re map things, reorder them. And that does happen to in the writing process of papers sometimes. And it can also happen in a thesis. I also have something to, yeah. what you really want to try to circumvent. I also have to admit that I probably take at least a day <laughs> per figure in the thesis and you usually have quite a few figures. So it's, yeah, it's, a lot. It, and it takes a huge amount of time. I wouldn't have imagined that. So, so within the last week, I basically prepared like three figures. Because obviously as a PhD, you, you work for longer than only one year. So like yeah. in this case, five years. And you really have to boil it down. And obviously you're not creating all the figures only within the last quarter. So you have to reevaluate and reanalyze up to some degree um, the past five years. And this is a huge amount of work. Yeah. So this is... <laughs> <laughs> what, what what advice would you give yourself if you could talk to yourself uh, at the start of the PhD? Oh boy. Um, try to f find a sample in the first place. <laughs> 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 it's 
start measuring right away. Um, uh, yeah. But I mean, you, you didn't say uh, you should take better notes and uh, order stuff better, which would have been my advice to my former self. Yeah. So you're more organized than I, I was. I guess I, uh, yeah, I guess I am organized. I actually had three different approaches on how to save progress and data and results I had, write down the hypothesis and then try to falsify it and so on. Um, but the only problem is that Every time I did this, at some point I realized that my system doesn't work anymore due to whatever reason. Um, and therefore I had to change the system. And then I missed to um, actually make sure that everything is in um, is coherent between the systems. And um, now I had to rethink and re-understand how I wrote things down. And then this also depends on where you store data, what kind of data you store. I also and, always and, find this interesting. Yeah. You have to think that you yourself two months later are already a different person. Yeah, completely. Uh, one good advice for everybody, write down everything you can think of. So the metadata, it's always the metadata. It's the most important one. And if you think it's not important, you're wrong. Yes. Write it down, especially in terms of like where you can simply write a T or create a TXT file, which is on a scale of like a kilobyte. Yeah, you put next to an image where you write, this is where yeah, what I took the image Simply write of. it out. Take that one minute, right? So I have like, I don't know. I also think this is very good advice to this students because they, they, this moment of starting to write your thesis is probably one of the most vulnerable points in the history of a PhD. Kind of. And uh, it's it's an exciting time, but it's, yeah, it's, it, I think everybody at that point runs into some issues. It's normal, but mm -hmm. indeed some people are better organized than other people and have and, it easier. Yeah. And, and it's the most painful moment when you realize that you should have written something down and you simply can't remember what you thought you might remember five years ago. <laughs> this is like, yeah. And that simply doesn't work. <laughs> then, then, uh, 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 like, uh, what what are your plans after the PhD? Maybe as a uh, in, in like closing question. Um, I I've always been interested in semiconductor industry, so I could imagine that I switch towards industry. I also um, always had a drive to to understand how industry and and markets work. Um, and therefore, I could imagine doing this. I hear um, Oregon is nice in the in the summer, right? Hmm? I hear Oregon is nice in the summer. That's true. That's so true. People say. Uh, so people say, and they even fabricate cool samples. Yes, <laughs> which came out at the beginning of this year. So indeed. So so uh, I mean, you you are lucky in the sense that industry is doing what you are doing uh, for your PhD now. So there there is definitely industry options. I guess so. Yeah. Um, yeah. I. I I don't want to rule out that I stay in academia for quite uh, for a little bit longer, but then it obviously should be interesting. Or should be interesting again is a harsh uh, statement, but um, I'm always eager to to develop myself and learn something new. Um, so it should definitely have some kind of change in terms of tasks. All right, then yeah. Uh Thank you for uh, uh, for sharing some of your PhD history and um, uh, all these insights on uh, the future of silicon spin cubic quantum computers. You're welcome. Thank you for having me.